Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your DC Comics Spotlight for November 2nd, 2021. Uh, apologies that Rocky can't join us. Uh, he's having some uh, family commitments right now. Um, so uh, hopefully I can handle everything on my own. Uh, you know, last time when I was stuck traveling, Rocky held down the fort on his own pretty much. So I guess it's my turn to or return the favor. I will say I'm just as disappointed he's not here as you guys probably are. Uh, I haven't done one of these DC spotlights by myself in a long time. And as I was getting ready to, to do it, I, I came to realize just how much I value and appreciate Rocky's uh, input into, you know, helping me see things in a little different way, or maybe, you know, he'll say something that I didn't notice. So anyway, hopefully he'll be back with us next week. Let's go ahead and dive into the books. It was a, I'd say it was an average week. There's some good DC books. There's some not so good DC books, but I'll go through them relatively quickly um, because I, I have some commitments of my own that I need to get to. So uh, I'll, I'll do the best I can. And, and as I said, it'll probably be uh, relatively quick. I, there's a few of the books I just really don't have that much to say, which again is part of the reason I was hoping Rocky could be here. But uh, be that as it may, let's kick it off with Arkham City, The Order of the World, number two. This is from writer Dan Waters. We have art by Danny, uh, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters are by Aditya Bidikar. Um, I, I didn't really enjoy the first issue that much, especially the art of it. I, I will say that it felt very creepy. I think the narrative that Dan Waters is doing is, um, is, is bringing to us is it's doing a couple of things. It's reminding us what a sort of house of horrors that Arkham Asylum truly is. So I do appreciate that. It's also reminding us how much Arkham Asylum is sort of integrated and such a huge part of what Gotham City is. Again, I go back to this idea of Gotham City. Why would anybody live there? Um, I mean, part of the identity of, of Gotham City is Arkham Asylum itself, this insane asylum for not just people who have mental illness, but some really depraved individuals, you know, we start talking about the bat villains, you know, you know Mr. Zaz. Um, it's, it's sort of professor pig. That's another one that, you know, really depraved doing sort of sick, sick things. And I, you know, I don't think that that necessarily was the sort of the first original intention of Arkham Asylum. Certainly we can think back to that Grant Morrison graphic novel, that was uh, with art by Dave McKean from the late 80s, early 90s. It was very uh, popular, critically acclaimed. And I guess it all goes back to, and this in a way is kind of applies to Batman's villains as well. You know, we, we've talked a lot, Rocky and I, in the recent past about sort of having to level Batman up and how he's become this like larger than life figure. He doesn't have superpowers, but yet he seems more powerful and capable than almost any hero in the DC universe. You can even argue he's more formidable than, than Superman. And I get it. It's because he's popular and everybody or a lot of comic creators have a, a Batman story, but you don't want to do something that is sort of less than the guy that came before you. So, you know, again, we've talked about this a lot. It feels like everybody's constantly trying to one up each other. And so when you're making Batman, when you're leveling him up, when you're making him more capable and more powerful and more intelligent, he sort of drags the villains up, you know, kind of like a rising tide floats all boats. I mean, you can't just have the same sort of 
silly Silver Age versions of the Penguin and the Riddler and, and whoever, because if Batman's become that much more capable and formidable, he would solve these mysteries. Uh, he'd take out these criminals in, in no time. And so, and, and part of it has to do with culture as well and, and sort of what's accepted and just kind of the escalating level of violence that we, and sophistication that we see in, in stories and how even in sort of modern culture, this idea of, of telling stories where the stakes have to get higher and more sophisticated because now stories are everywhere. We have more and more types of stories. You know, you go back and look at stories from the 30s and 40s, maybe it, they were presented in a different way where things weren't quite so gritty or, or dirty or debased or, or whatever labels you want to put on them. It's an evolution of story, which sort of, you know, reflects society. And so all that plays a part in, in what we have here in Arkham City, the order of the world, where we're talking about the ten-eyed man who he himself has leveled up. You know, when you think about ten-eyed man, and it's just a guy who can see and you know with eyeballs on his fingers, basically, it doesn't really make sense. Sort of kind of silly. Well, when you start taking that to a higher extreme, you start talking start talking about the fact that there's something supernatural about him, and then it plays into this idea of evil and how he can see things and he can see the way that. Arkham Asylum and the ghost of Arkham and all that are so intertwined with Arkham City itself. And, you know, uh, there's references made to kind of what's going on with in Gotham City right now, with obviously with A-Day and all the, the villains have escaped and they're out there, they're dangerous. They're not just, you know, pulling off bank robberies or whatever. They're out there hurting people. They're, it's just a, a very much a gritty and and dirty and scary and creepy story. And all that plays into this idea again of, of a leveling up. And I'm sure Dan Waters, the writers, he's, he's trying to play into that. He's trying to, to talk about the depravity, the, um, the poverty, kind of the, the seedy underbelly of Gotham city, which sort of is, is all we ever see. And at some point we have to start thinking, is this really the underbelly or is this just Gotham? Is this just how Gotham is? And, and the nice parts of Gotham are, are sort of the exception because all we ever see of Gotham really in the comics is just this terrible, dirty, run-down city with poverty and villains and drugs and crime. And again, I go back to why would anybody live there? I mean, more than ever over the past few years, maybe four or five years, I almost feel like it seems that Batman is doing a worse job. I and mean, we say, oh, crime is down or Batman's doing a great job or, or whatever, but it, it seems like it's going in the other direction. It seems like, and again, I know it's for story purposes and this idea of escalation and needing to one up, but I don't know. I don't remember when I was reading Scott Snyder's Batman feeling like Gotham was as bad as it is now. It felt like a, a very diverse and metropolitan city that had crime. And now the way Gotham feels in the current DC universe, and maybe you're, you're feeling differently than me, but the way I feel about it is that Gotham City is crime and chaos and madness and supervillains and everything else, everything normal that you would find in a city is, is the exception. It's, it's being drowned out. We're just not seeing enough of it, you know, between um, the, uh, the Joker War leading basically directly into fear state uh, and everything we've seen there. 
I mean, I know I sound like a broken record. I mean, it goes beyond why would I, I say it sort of tongue in cheek. Why would anyone want to live there? But there's a, there's some truth to that. I mean, it, this place is is bad right now. And you know, I don't want to sound like Rocky with we need some hope. We need some hope. We need some hope in some DC comics. But in a way we do, we need to see like Batman needs some wins here and, and not just, okay, you know, he won the, the war of the Joker or whatever. He was able to take the Joker out, but like some sustained wins, you know, like, can we, can we get some good things in Gotham city? I mean, I read a lot of the ideas that James Tynan had for, for Gotham city. And, and he did have some good ideas that I think were leading in the right direction. I, I mean, he still was going to tell a fantastic story in, uh, in fear state, but I don't know. It's almost like DC editorial doesn't want to give Gotham city any sort of break at all. Um, which I think is a, a mistake. Um, I, I often talk about this idea of settings being their own character. I think it's important and, uh, it's it's sort of time to give the character of Gotham City uh, a break. You know, it can't just be just like I talk about with stories where it can't be, you know, one amazing hot, you know, uh, up story beat after another. And it can't be a down story beat after another, after another, after another either. Right. Because like it's boring and everything can't be pedaled to the metal all the time either. You need the contrast so you can appreciate the difference between the two. And right now, I, I can't appreciate Gotham as anything other than just a like a nightmare. Basically, it, it's horrific. Nobody would nobody would live in Gotham. I mean, I don't care if you didn't have two cents to rub together, you would find a way to leave. That's how bad Gotham City is right now. So, I don't know. I almost feel like I need to start a, a social media campaign to like brighten up Gotham. It's it's gotten way too depressing. And Dan Water's story peer plays right into that. It fits perfectly in some, you know, horrific dystopian type city where you don't have a choice. Like, why would people stay in Gotham City if it's this bad? Well, if the whole world was this bad, if every place was this bad, and that's sort of what it feels like. It feels hopeless and it feels creepy. And we get Azrael showing up here. And, you know, we talked about Azrael a few weeks ago when he showed up in the pages of Batman Urban Legends. And, and I was kind of excited to see him because it seems like he's sort of a forgotten Batman family character. But unfortunately, and I said this when we got the Urban Legends story, um, I, I'm not a big fan of the, kind of the religious overtones. I'm, I'm being slapped in the face with it um, when uh, when our, uh, Azrael returned. And, and that's the same thing continuing here. And I guess that's who he is i know it's very uh, integral to his origin obviously being trained by the order of saint dumas um but it's it's to me it's the least interesting maybe because i find religion as a motivation to be so illogical i can't really relate to it at all because uh, it's just such nonsense to me um so and it's, it's kind of boring with the whole preachy sort of uh dialogue and scripting so i don't know it is good to see him, but I don't know that if it's working for me. And the art I thought was a little bit better. For, it was a little cleaner. Uh, it certainly suits the story and the tone of the story that Tan Waters is trying to tell. Danny does a good job of making it feel dirty and gritty and creepy. Um, but then that's sort of the problem, right? Like I'm talking about how Gotham is overly dirty and creepy and messy and muddy. And 
her art just makes it feel more so. And, and maybe, it, you know, it's contributing the, in the wrong way with some cleaner art, some brighter colors, which again, it wouldn't necessarily suit the tone of the story, but maybe there's a middle ground to be, to be found. Uh, I will say that her storytelling is, is pretty solid. And um, I did like this issue slightly more than the, the first. I felt like it was, uh, it was paced a little better. It moved a little quicker. Uh, we're starting to see some hints of what might be going on, but still not a huge fan of the story. Um, and I, I feel like e either thing could improve. I, I could either have cleaner art and maybe her art will continue in that direction, or I could have a story that wasn't quite so morose. It, you know, you, you could have a story that's not so depressing, for lack of a better word, and it could still be interesting because Dan Waters has a lot of fantastic ideas here. Um, and I think we do need to explore what happened to the villains after A-Day. Uh, and, and this idea of leveling up the Ten-Eyed Man, he is formidable, you know, whether you think it's valid or not. Um, I think he's just still ridiculous with fingers on his hands. You know, I won't make the argument there, but at least he's more of a threat. So uh, I don't know. I think this is an acquired taste. It definitely is creepy. If you like horror comics, you probably enjoy it. I guess it is adding context to the whole bat corner of the DC universe with something going on with Arkham. Azrael does show up. So if you're an Azrael fan, you might want to check it out. I don't know. It's hard for me to give this a, a grade. I don't know if I'd recommend it or not. Um, so I'll let you guys decide for yourself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess if I was more into the style of art, I, I would probably recommend it. But for me, it's eh, I'm kind of on the fence about it. So Anyway, I talked way longer about <laughs> Arkham City than I, I thought I would. So let's go ahead and move on to uh, Batman number 116. This is Fear State Part 5, written by James Tynan. Jorge Jimenez is the artist. We have Tameyu Moray on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. The, there is a backup with uh, Stephanie Brown version of Batgirl and the Cassandra Kane uh, version of Batgirl. It's part two of Batgirls, part two of three. Uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad are the writers. Jorge Corona is the artist. Sarah Stern on colors and Becca Carey on letters. And this is going to lead directly into the Batgirl series, which is coming uh, at the first of the year. So last time we saw in uh, the last issue of Batman, uh, Batman and Miracle Molly had teamed up to try to go get the machine that uh, Mr. Ways used, kind of the head of the Unsanity Collective it's the machine that he uses to basically wipe everybody's memories or, or personality before they join the Unsanity Collective so they can become their quote-unquote true selves, only to come to find out that the Scarecrow had stolen it, and he's going to basically use it as this like fear bomb to uh, kind of induce fear into everyone in Gotham and, and create that fear state, which will allow people to, to level up. Meanwhile, under the city of Gotham, the one half of Poison Ivy that's sort of more malevolent uh, or is more, I guess I almost think of her as more of the plant side of things, right? Like a plant doesn't really care about humanity. You know, it doesn't have those sort of emotions. If this version of Ivy has any emotions, it's just sort of anger and, and wanting to lash out. And there's an inevitability to her, um, just like a plant or a tree or, or some ivy where it, it just grows and it doesn't care if there's a sidewalk there or the ivy doesn't care if there's a wall, it'll grow through it. And, you know, you don't normally think, okay, I'm going to th think of this 
this ivy or this tree as being, you know, especially when it's very small, as being this sort of force that can topple mountains or uh, destroy rock or foundations or whatever. But over time, it can, you know, it grows underneath and lifts up and it just exerts pressure. It's sort of inexorable in that way. And that's kind of what this, I think of this version of Ivy is, as opposed to the other half of her that Harley Quinn brings in, in this issue that has more of the human side of her, more of her humanity, more of her compassion, more of sort of the Pamela Isley side. Uh, And we do know that the magistrate had infiltrated Eden, as it's called, the the portion underneath Gotham City, where, um, where that sort of inexorable half of Ivy has been, and the Unsanity Collective retreated there once they were attacked, and now the magistrate has followed them there, and they're calling into Simon Saint and uh, saying, what should we do? And Simon Saint saying, kill everybody there. And um, obviously, Ghostmaker's there saying, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to let that happen. Meanwhile, uh, Batman and Miracle Molly are able to, to track the device that, um, that I was talking about earlier that Mr. Ways had invented. Um, and as they get really close to it, they're actually confronted by the Scarecrow. So it's sort of an interesting confrontation. You figure Batman would just go right after him. But Scarecrow is able to, because he stole that machine and studied it, He's able to sort of tap into Miracle Molly's brain because obviously she had her old personality and her old memories and whatnot wiped away by that machine. So in a way, she's still connected to it. And so Scarecrow is able to do to Miracle Molly what he plans on doing to all uh, the citizens of of Gotham. And so he gets inside her head and it's causing all kinds of uh, physical pain and fear. And so Batman agrees to go with Scarecrow if he'll he'll stop torturing Miracle Molly, but it's all a setup. Once they get to Scarecrow's headquarters uh, underground, we see that uh, Peacekeeper One is there, uh, and he's being uh, being tortured. And uh, the Scarecrow saying, "Poor Sean Mahoney, such pain, such trauma. We know he just fought Peacekeeper X, and you know there's all kinds of damage, and so." Scarecrow's basically evolving him. He's talking about how you need to evolve uh, Peacekeeper One so that he can move beyond the fear state to the future state. And then he'll be the perfect leader to guide Gotham from a fear state to a future state. Meanwhile, Miracle Molly's of no help because she's, you know, still has that wavelength going on in her head. So Batman ends up attacking Scarecrow. and he almost gets the upper hand, but before he can, Scarecrow manages to uh, like grab the machine uh, and and prevent Batman. And he, he takes his mask and off and everything. And he's he's being as honest as I've ever seen Scarecrow be. And he's talking about Batman. You know, it's kind of fun. And I forgot how fun it was, but you know, this is something really important. I mean, he actually believes in what he's doing. You know, he's a, he's a true believer that fear will make Gotham evolve and turn it into a better place. And so as Batman's trying to figure out his next move, we see that Sean Mahoney sort of finishes his evolution uh, and it didn't quite go the way that Scarecrow thought it was would. And Sean Mahoney actually shoots the Scarecrow and then him and Batman start to fight. And Sean Mahoney's talking about uh, that in a way, uh, Simon Saint and the Scarecrow were right, but they're not 
actually taking it far enough. And he's going to, and neither is Batman. Batman's not doing a good job of protecting Gotham either, which the argument could be made, right? I was just talking about what a cesspool Gotham has become. And so he's, Sean Mahoney still sees himself as the hero that Gotham needs. And the only way they can bring uh, order is to be, to become fearful, to, to lead the magistrate and have the people of Gotham not be afraid of, of what's in their head or not be af- afraid because of some artificial inducement of fear by the scarecrow, but for people to be afraid of the magistrate itself, be afraid of how, uh, how they might be punished if they step out of line, basically. That, I mean, it's, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense for who Sean Mahoney is, you know, starting off as a, a son of a criminal who broke the rules and then you know, seeing that and, and being exposed to that trauma over and over and then becoming a, a part of uh, sort of law enforcement, working at Arkham Asylum, and then being elevated to the magistrate, being peacekeeper one, and, and actually having power for the first time. Uh, and the other thing that this evolution that the Scarecrow's machine has uh, sort of kickstarted in him, he's, he's got nanites in his, in his blood now as well on top of his peacekeeper abilities, on top of the peacekeeper armor. So he's, he's actually a pretty good match for Batman when they go toe-to-toe. So while Batman does that, Miracle Molly, because the Scarecrow got shot, is no longer under the control. And so she's trying to figure out how to stop the bomb or, or the system or whatever it is that the Scarecrow set up that's about to take Mr. Wise's machine and you know put everybody in that state, the state that Miracle Molly was in, the state that... Uh, Sean Mahoney was in and just evolved out of. And so there's a big fight between Batman and Sean Mahoney while we see the uh, forces of the magistrate in Eden underneath Gotham City attacking Ivy, the militant version of Ivy, that plant, more plant version, like I was saying. When here comes the gardener and Harley Quinn with the more human side of Ivy saying, uh, hey, do you need some help? You know, I brought, I brought, uh, and, and sort of the militant uh, poison ivy is like, Harley, I don't, I don't need your help. And Harley says, okay, well, if you don't listen to me, maybe you'll listen to yourself. And she points to the uh, more human version of, of Ivy. Although I, I do, I think it would be better if, and we've seen this recently, like we saw Ivy when she showed up in the pages of, um, what series was it? I guess in the pages of Batman during Tom King's run and her skin was green. But then when Ivy showed up in uh, the pages of Heroes in Crisis, which was also uh, Tom King, her, her skin was like normal flesh tone. So I wish they had kept that, you know, the one part of her being flesh tone, that's the more human part and then the other part of her green. I guess when she showed up in the pages of damage as well, she had a green skin. So, and that was when she was real militant as well. So anyway, that's how this plays out. And it says to be concluded in two weeks. So a bit of a cliffhanger, Batman fighting Sean Mahoney with the scarecrow sort of bleeding out miracle Molly, trying to stop the fear machine from going off and the two Ivies about to meet each other and come face to face for the first time. Uh, all right. The Batgirls uh, back up. I don't have a whole lot to say. I and that's I, I wish Rocky was here to talk about it because Cassandra Kane is his favorite DC character. I'm not as familiar with Cassandra Kane, but I just I got this feeling 
a little bit with Stephanie Brown as well, but more with Cassandra Kane that uh, Clunan and Conrad, their, their voice they have for Cassandra Kane doesn't feel authentic to me. It doesn't feel like Cassandra Kane. And I don't know, maybe I'm misreading that. Maybe it's because I haven't read enough, uh, enough stories with Cassandra Kane in it, but I don't know, something just feels off. Something feels off about this whole story. Maybe I'm not the t- right target audience for this book. I, I, you know, and here I go and say, well, I'm not planning on reading Batgirls and, I, and I'm not, um, but I'll probably read it because I'm going to get a press copy, but I'm definitely not buying it. It just doesn't like, if this is what it's going to be. And I, I've talked before about how much I love Jorge Corona's art, especially Middle West that he did with Scotty Young, but I'm not a fan of it here. To me, it doesn't work for this sort of superhero tale. And and I don't know, I, I just sort of feel like both Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown come off as very young and sort of incompetent here. And that's not who I know them to be, at least from what I know of them. And so I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the point of this is. I, I'm not sure what the point of the Batgirls uh, story is or, or series is other than to give Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown their own series, which, which I guess is great. And if young, it brings younger readers in, especially girls, that then I think that's great as well. But I don't know. This just, it didn't work for me. You know, they, they go to the, um, they go to the clock tower or previously Oracle's headquarters and the, the magistrate is, is there waiting for them. And they basically tell them, come out. They don't come out. They destroy the clock tower. There's reporters there outside and they're saying the magistrate is blaming the Batgirls saying they're terrorists, saying Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane, not saying their names, but but saying those two individuals, those two Batgirls were terrorists and they blew up the clock tower. Everybody's around. There's news crews filming and everything. So everybody can see that the magistrate didn't, that they're the ones, the magistrates were the ones that attacked and destroyed it. And so, I don't know, it just seems, and I get it, right? It's the whole era of misinformation or disinformation or you know, fake news or whatever you want to call it. But it, I don't know, maybe I'm just sick of it. There's so much of it in real life. I don't need it in my comics anymore. Kind of like the whole fascism theme that was going on last year. So I don't know. I just thought it was, it was cliched and played out. And, you know, along with not feeling like this is their best characterization, I don't know. It just didn't do anything for me. Like if this is what the, like, like maybe a good Batgirl story could have pulled me in, even though I'm not a huge fan of, of Stephanie Brown, especially Cassandra Kane. I, some at times I've liked her at times. Um, so I'll be, yeah, I'll be real curious to hear what Rocky thinks about this. I don't think he, I can't remember if he enjoyed the first uh, part. I don't think he did, but I mean, it's Cassandra Kane. So he's got to be picking up the regular series, right? You would think so. I don't know. I, I just thought it was okay. I mean, and again, the, the art just doesn't suit the tone of the story. Although the storytelling from Jorge Corona, I cannot fault. It's just technically a well-written uh, comic. It's paced well. Um, the visual storytelling is, is very good. Um, but yeah, just I, I just think I'm not the target audience for it at all. So anyway, let me move on. Next book is Batman Reptilian number five, written from Garth uh, written by Garth Ennis. Liam Sharp does the art and the colors. Rob Steen is on the letters. Once again, the highlight of this book is the art. I mean, it's so it's so tongue in cheek and it's so violent. And we, we've talked uh, 
every single time this book has dropped, this series has dropped, we've talked about what a different version of Batman it is, how sort of uncaring and callous he is. And, and it's almost beyond that. It's almost a step beyond him being uncaring to where he actually seems to enjoy and be entertained and derive humor from when villains or criminals are suffering. Um, and at first it was, it was interesting and kind of funny. And now I think it's almost, it's almost like this version of Batman is, is sort of depraved in a way, you know, like he, he's taking joy from other people's pain. He's a bit of a masochist. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's Garth Ennis just taking Batman to his sort of logical evolution. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that I enjoy it. it I mean, I guess as a form of, of satire or, you know, e exaggeration for effect. Um, Cause early on it was, it was sort of interesting because it was something new a, a new way to look at Batman, but man, the stuff he does in this issue is, is just brutal. I mean, he, he's tormenting killer croc and, and the baby that croc gave birth to, in a, in a way like, okay, croc, um, you know, it's your baby go ahead and nurse it croc, croc doesn't have the like physical body parts needed to do that right like he's not producing milk um and I, I don't even know that reptiles do produce milk i'm not exactly sure how they feed there yet but he can't do that and then the thing wants to to mate with him and croc can't do that either and so batman's like well what what use are you you know he almost just feeds croc to the thing so it's it's definitely taking Batman to the logical limit, I guess you you would say, or maybe even past the limit, maybe just one step over the line for Garth Ennis, which I, I guess as a creator, that's a lot of fun to do, you know, to, to push it to its absolute limit and then take one step further. And it's probably why Liam Sharp's been enjoying working on this series so much because it is pushing the envelope and, it, and it's a great example of what black label allows you to do when it's not in continuity and, and it can be, you know, more mature themes, but man, this is definitely not the sort of Batman that you would want to, that you would want to cross, you know, he, he definitely would strike fear in the hearts. So we haven't seen a whole lot of his version of Gotham city. It's been, you know, underneath and there's not a lot of context in the setting. It's, it's been pretty, it's a pretty streamlined and focused story on, on what is actually going on. But the reason I mention it is because his Gotham city, this version of Batman, his Gotham city is, is probably not the hopeless place that the regular DC universe's Batman's Gotham city is like, I was just talking about, because this Batman is, is much more, uh, or I should say much less lenient. Uh, people are much more likely to be afraid of him. And thus I would think there'd be less crime. Uh, so it's kind of interesting, but there's one more, uh, there's one more issue of Batman Reptilian. I'm very curious to see how it ends because what Batman chooses to do, uh, you know, after Croc can't nurse this terrible monster that he birthed and he can't, or he chooses not to mate with it. Um, you know, Batman, there's only a couple of people that the thing is attracted to, right? Like the one Russian guy, um, that, uh, that Batman was using as an informant, uh, Konstantin uh, Volkov and uh, Croc himself. Those are sort of the only two 
I guess for lack of a term, pieces of bait Batman can use to trap this monster. It's the only, the only two that have a connection to it. Uh, and Batman doesn't hesitate to, to use one or the other or both to try to stop this thing. So it's pretty interesting how it's all going to play out. And we, we don't yet know how it's going to play out. But what we do know is based on the next to last page, what Batman chooses to do is, is pretty out of left field. So the last issue I can only imagine is going to be a pretty wild ride. So we'll have to see how it all, how it all finishes up, but man, what an, what a masterpiece of, of visual uh, storytelling and color from, from Liam Sharp. I mean, it is just stunningly good. Uh, And it has been all along. It's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, Okay. Up next is Batman Superman Authority Special Number One. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. We have Trevor Hairsign, Jonathan Glapion, Scott Hanna, and Rain Barreto. They do the art for the Earth Zero pages. And then Ben Templesmith does the art for the Shadow Earth. And then Tom Napolitano on letters. Um, I didn't really care for this. Uh, I didn't, I don't know how it makes sense i don't know why they felt they needed it uh and again this goes back to the messy timeline messy editorial decisions and whatnot that rocky and i talked about last time we we talked about superman and the authority number four so throughout that series which has incredible art by mikhail yanin superman had gray hair at his temples and you know, put the team together and, and had that look and had a different costume. And then at the very end, he changed to his regular Superman costume. And now Superman and the authority special starts up and there's not a gray hair to be found. Like it just makes no sense. And, and again, I don't know why this thing exists. Why does this issue exist? Last we saw Superman had put the team of the authority together and they were going to head off to war world, right? They left earth. They were heading to war world to stop uh, the latest iteration of of Mongol. And then this book starts and it's all about the dark multiverse. Basically there's uh, an, a world in the dark multiverse where the, the Al Ghul family, Ra's Al Ghul's descendants basically took over and they rule everything. And there's, there's peace and there's, uh, there's no disease or, or, uh, or war basically because it's sort of, everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's persecuted. The Al Ghuls have conquered all. They rule the planet. Um, and Batman finds out about this because uh, the Fuganaut has been, the, that we last, I think we last saw him in the Flash Forward series, but first appeared in the Sideways uh, mini, uh, or it wasn't supposed to be a mini, but anyway, the Sideways series that Dan Didio wrote. Uh, and, and I thought he's a great character. He's, he's sort of like a DC version of the Watcher. So he's been captured by these, uh, Al Ghul's and you know obviously has knowledge of the multiverse and omniverse so they're going to supposedly using that knowledge to travel around and, and take over other planets they're going to start with earth zero because that's the one they're told has sort of the most um, influence on the rest of the multiverse I guess you'd say so even though the the, the authority superman and the authority are just about to leave to war world then batman shows them and says oh wait before you go superman even though superman asked Batman and asked the Justice League to come help him on War World. Justice League says, no, we can't have anything to do with you, Superman, because of the political stuff that you pulled with the, the piece of the, the source wall or whatnot. 
So, and Batman even remarks on that in, in this, because Batman shows up and asks for help. And Superman says, well, I asked you for help. And you said, no. I asked the Justice League for help. They said, no, you come and ask me for help and my new team. And I'm not going to say no, because I'm Superman. I mean, I guess he's got a point. That's true. But it just felt so shoehorned in. And that's where I end up going, okay, so why does this need to exist? So they're just about to leave for War World. And then instead, all of a sudden, no, let's take a quick trip to the dark multiverse instead and fight against these owl ghouls and their their leader and rescue the Tempest Fuginot or Fuginot so that owl ghouls won't be able to travel. Well, it turns out it's all one big trap. The owl ghouls don't have the ability to travel between worlds, but the Enchantress does. And the whole reason they even let the Fuginot get a message out is because they basically want to capture the Enchantress. The owl ghouls want to capture the Enchantress and then she's going to be what leads or, or what allows the Al Ghuls to travel to Earth Zero and subsequent Earths because with her magical abilities, the Enchantress can open worlds uh, or open doorways between different multiverses. So sure enough, they go there, the Enchantress gets captured, there's a couple of big fights, and it's all sort of messy. Um, again, it's another situation, much like the Danny art on Arkham City, where both Ben Templesmith and and the other artists like Trevor Hairsign, Jonathan Glapion, Scott Han. I've never seen that combo before. And it doesn't look anything like Trevor Hairsign art that I've seen in the past. Like it's sort of unrecognizable as Trevor Hairsign. Um, and I don't know, it just, it, the art just didn't work for me. Um, but the, the Earth of Zero art from Ben Templesmith is so stylized and it's so radically different than the Trevor Hairsign art that it, it pulled constantly. Every time it switched between one or the other, it pulled me out of the story. So the art doesn't do the book any favors. And I just end up thinking what every time it pulls me out of the story, I'm thinking to myself, why does this story? What, what? And it's not a bad story necessarily. If it's, you know, sort of cliched. Okay. The bad guys trick the heroes into bringing them what they actually need. They play right into their hands. They've been set up. They're not, even Batman himself was not smart enough. Uh, but then, of course, the heroes do win the day and they rescue Enchantress and they leave and go back. And even though they don't defeat the Al Ghuls, it's okay because the Al Ghuls don't have the uh, ability to, to travel off out of their multiverse. So, um, and Batman ends up, despite the misgivings and doubts he had about this team, to which, you know, when he first got there, he's like, man, most of these are our are, are opponents, not our teammates, Clark. And Superman's like, hey, I asked you guys for help and you didn't want to help. I asked these guys for help and they agreed. So this is my team. And then at the end, of course, Batman's like, oh, you, you, you did good, guys. You know, you're you are a good team. And and I guess now they can finally go and uh, and finally leave for War World. So why what this accomplished and what it needed to do, I, I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of Al Ghul mini series coming up or what have you because what we do find out and it's heavily hinted at throughout so when it finally the reveal finally happens we we're not surprised the leader of the al ghouls is actually the that world's bruce wayne so i didn't I, I thought all the bruce waynes were killed or were merged with other heroes you know that's what the whole um Dark Knight's Metal series was about how it was all the Bruce Waynes from the Dark Multiverse. So apparently it's not because this is a Bruce Wayne that married Talia and has offspring. And he's the one that brought uh, 
that that brought Ra's al Ghul's sort of mission to to fruition. Uh, you know, defeated the world and. Uh, it's, the issue ends with him saying, "Don't worry, children. We'll see our enemies again." And uh, ooh, scary! It's Bruce Wayne as as a bad guy, basically. Again, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the whole dark, the whole dark multiverse thing. Th- I don't mind that as a concept, but the fact that you know there's these dark mirror reflections and all these Bruce Waynes are evil that just doesn't. It never works for me. It really doesn't. Um, which you guys know when I start talking about the Batman who laughs and what a terrible character I think he is and whatnot. So I don't know, this just felt old and tired and cliched. And um, I think I, as much as I am not a big fan of Grant Morrison, and I, and I think that sort of the changing ideas with 5G and editorial interference and, and just all the changes that, that happened at DC over the last year, year and a half, affected the Superman and the Authority greatly right um and i I think it's unfortunate because i would have liked to have seen what it was really supposed to be without any changes what grant morrison really could have done um and as much as i'm not a morrison fan i also do wish this had been written by him because it would have made more sense and it would have tied in i mean i feel like even though this is a batman superman authority special um, you might as well not even have the authority on there. We get a little bit of Midnighter. The next person who who matters at all or, or has the most uh, screen time, I guess you'd say, is Apollo. And after that, that's it. Manchester Black barely says a few words. Uh, Enchantress is a plot point. Um, what's her name? Natasha Irons. I don't even know if she even talks, <laughs> to be honest with you. So yeah, they, they, I I don't know. I I didn't care for this. Didn't understand why it needed to exist. Just to introduce this world of Al Ghul's, the the empire of shadows, I guess. Um, I hope they don't show up again, to be honest, because they were pretty freaking cliched and boring. So, and I didn't think the art did itself any favors. Uh, And it wasn't that either one of the art styles was terrible. I don't want to say that. I don't mean to say that at all. Um, I, I wasn't a big fan of the stylized uh, Ben Temple Smith stuff, but I think if you, if you'd done the whole issue in that style, it could have worked. And then the same thing, even though I didn't recognize it as Trevor hair sign with Jonathan Glapping inks over it, it could have worked if you'd done the whole, the whole book in that style, but flipping back and forth between these two wildly disparate styles was, was pretty bad. It just sort of, it made it made the other art look worse because they were it wasn't that one was so much better than the other it's just that the styles of them were so different if one sort of highlighted the weakness of the other oh look the anatomy and on the earth zero is or uh, on the shadow earth is is exaggerated and stylized and why why is it all wonky like that then you go back to the trevor harrison stuff on earth zero and then even though the it's not his best work um it's not as detailed but uh, you know the anatomy is like more realistic and more uh, traditional superhero art and so you get used to that style um but it does it's kind of stiff and it doesn't have sort of the the fun or um or sense of fluidity that the ben templesmith stuff has so each of them sort of highlights the weakness of the other style and i just really poor choice in my mind to uh 
to put those two styles together. I don't know, really bad. Uh, all right, up next we have Crush and Lobo number six. This is written by Mariko Tamaki. The art is by Amon Clay Nahulipin. Colors by Tamara Bonvillon and Nick Filardi. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Uh, I've talked about how much I've enjoyed this series to this point. I didn't know much about Crush. I'm not a big fan of Logo, Lobo, but I've been enjoying this, uh, especially the last couple of issues. Last issue, especially. I think it was the best issue of the series. But unfortunately, we follow that up with the worst issue of the series. Uh, I end up finding myself thinking, wait, what's the point of this issue? Like, I really don't know. I really don't. It, Lobo doesn't show up at all. Um, Crush arrives on Space Vegas and goes on a date, of all things. Uh, and the, the, the reason for that is because she's it's a sense of mistaken identity, and she feels bad to tell the other person, oh, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not the date you're here to meet. Like, what? It doesn't make any sense. It feels out of character for what I know of Crush. Um, so I, I don't know. Like, it, it, I just, nothing happens. Nothing happens to move the story forward. It, I don't feel like it adds any context. We basically get Crush is looking around Vegas. She's narrating again, saying, I'm having a hard time finding my dad. She's trying to take off the timer that's supposedly going to kill her, uh, the, the bomb that's going to go off on her wrist and kill her if she doesn't find her dad in time. When she tampers with it, she realizes that she loses time. She loses an hour from like one second to the next. Decides, well, I better not mess with it anymore. So she goes out to look for her dad some more, runs into this person that thinks it's her date, goes to a comedy club with him, gets mad when the, um, when the comedian on stage makes fun of what she looks like and gets in a fight with him, which then makes her date realize that She's not who uh, she, the date thought that she was. And then the date's like, I got to go. And Crush is like, no, j just a minute. I, you, you thought I was somebody else. And that made me want to be a better person because uh, I thought you, you needed somebody in your life. I'm like, wait, what? What does any of that have to do with finding her dad? And then the issue ends. The person, her date get, gets in the, taxi and and goes away and she goes back to her hotel feeling bad and gets a lead on where lobo might be like this was far and away the worst the worst issue of the series i, I didn't understand well i didn't understand what the point of it was at all like at all um if you didn't need eight issues then you could have made this series seven issues because this this was just bad um I'm sure Rocky would have hated it too, but he probably would have liked it even less than me. I thought the art was really good though. I will say that the art and the color, especially the color, I mean, space of Vegas. So we get some pretty bright neon and whatnot. Um, so the, the art is top notch, maybe some of the best art uh, of the entire series, but I, I didn't understand the point of this issue at all. Maybe, maybe I missed it. Maybe I'm dumb. Maybe it went right over my head. I don't know, but didn't like it. Uh, all right. Up next, Dark Knight's, of Steel, number one. This has been a highly anticipated series. It's written by Tom Taylor, art and color by Yasmin Putri, letters by Wes Abbott. Interesting story. So it's sort of like crossing the DC universe with like mid medieval times, uh, Arth, you know, Legend of King Arthur or whatnot. So basically what happens is uh, Krypton explodes and there's a ship that leaves uh, at the last second, escaping the destruction of Krypton that crashes on earth, a rocket, 
Uh, and I'm sure that none of this sounds disfamiliar yet or unfamiliar. Uh, and when the rocket crashes, the lid or the canopy, I guess you'd say, pops off. And out comes Jorel and Laura. And Laura is screaming, he's coming. And who's coming? It's actually Clark. Clark is born on Earth from Laura. Um, so as she's there, like literally having uh, Jorel pop out of her, these uh, archers arrive on horseback. And obviously they're freaked out of their minds because they've never seen a spaceship, you know, flame from the sky. They don't know who these people are. So it's all, it's shoot first and ask questions later. And so they fire arrows at both Jorel and Laura, who's about to give birth, literally like right about to pop the kid out. And so Jorel is trying to talk to them, say, no, don't do this. Don't do this. Please, please, please. She's in labor and he doesn't have a choice because they've unleashed their arrows. And so he uses heat vision and he fries the arrows along with every horse and every man. And they are just brutalized. They are just burnt to a crisp. And uh, Jorel is born in this field that's uh, smoldering ruins, uh, smoldering remains of uh, this, this legion of archers that uh, attack them. And then we, we jump forward many, many years and uh, we move over to uh, a different kingdom. We're not told what that first kingdom is, but we're, we move over to the kingdom of storms where we see their king, Jefferson Pierce, otherwise known as Black Lightning, is in a small village, in a small hut, and he's listening to this boy known as Constantine who's seeing the future. And he's foretelling uh, these of these people that are going to come and they're going to be the the end of the world and they can t uh, they step from their world into ours and you know they're, they're like gods and they can tear people as easily as parchment and they're more powerful than castle walls and Constantine then sits up and stops speaking in this weird voice and uh, Jefferson Pierce King Jefferson I guess or maybe King Pierce he says what is it Constantine what do you see and Constantine says our end so we jump forward 19 years later. Now it's the Castle of El. And we see that Jorel and Laura have actually become the rulers of this kingdom. Batman is their sort of head of security, I guess you'd say, or um, he, he's their adopted son, but he's also in charge of keeping the kingdom safe from rebels. And he goes and he captures a, a banshee, as she's called, who's supposedly part of this resistance to king and, and it turns out it's dinah it's who we know as black canary and uh she's only captured with the help of uh, kal-el of superman or clark Kent, whatever you want to call him when he shows up there to help batman even though batman had told him or bruce had told him no you can't come with me it's my job to protect you it's my job to keep keep you safe and so then when they go back to uh, the castle harley quinn is is teasing them about their battle Apparently she's the court jester. Alfred is sort of the, the uh, what would you call it? The head of the, the keep, I guess you'd say. Major Domo, maybe. Uh, he's in charge of, of keeping the castle running. And so um, Bruce tries to take the blame for Jorel being there and, and or for Kalo being there. And, and Clark says, no, I won't let him blame me. I went on my own accord. And Jorel says, you, you need to be careful. You know, we're, uh, we're susceptible to magic and 
Clark says, I, you know, we can do so much. We have so much power. Um, and yet we're using it to lock away innocence. So it seems like there's a little bit of conflict there between father and son. Maybe it's Jorel's upbringing on Krypton, a little more militant, a little more fascist leaning, uh, ends justify the means as opposed to, to this Clark, which, you know, you always think of Superman's, um, decency and sense of justice coming from those mid-American values being raised by Ma and Pa Kent. Well, he's not raised by Ma and Pa Kent here, but yet he still inherently seems to want to fight for the little guy. So there's a bit of a disagreement there. And, uh, and then Batman wants to, to talk to uh, King Jorel. And uh, he talks about how when he confronted Banshee, he wasn't, um, he wasn't hurt, even though everything around him was shattered. And he doesn't, it's happened a few times. As far as he knows, he doesn't have superpowers. Uh, and then we we learn through his conversation with Jorel that uh, that uh, Jorel actually um, what's the word I want to use here mated I guess uh, bedded Martha w- uh, Wayne who apparently that was the the king and queen that were assassinated I think was is if I remember right or that it's what's hinted at um, and then Jorel and Laura took over but apparently. Jorel is actually Bruce's father. So come to find out Bruce and Clark are half brothers. And that's why he has uh, the abilities because he, he, he's worried that he's possessed and, you know, Bruce wanting his whole job is to protect the Royal family. And if he's somehow infected by magic, he, he thinks he should go. He thinks he should be banished. And Jorel's like, no, that's not what happened. You're actually my, truly my son. I call you my son. Cause you're, you know, sort of an adopted son, but you're truly my son. Um, you're not cursed like you think you are. So meanwhile, the rebellion, which uh, apparently it's a green lantern, always sees a hand in a ring and then a green arrow um, or the green arrow who it, apparently they, it, it's got to be kryptonite in some way, because what happens is green lantern imbues this arrow with, I guess, some sort of kryptonite and then uh, green arrow fires it from long 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 very long distance and but his aim is as true as ever and it actually it's pretty brutal it it flies far through the air and it it actually hits Jorel right in the eye and kills him um as he's sitting there finishing up his conversation with bruce uh and he falls to his death and that's the end of the that's the end of the first issue so I don't know what to think about it. I mean, clearly this is way, way, way far out of continuity. It's a very fanciful tale. Um, you know, again, these Arthurian sort of legends and tropes with knights and squires and wizards and magic mixed in with the DC universe. And I mean, a lot of the fun's going to be seeing these different versions of, you know, Batman or Superman or Green Arrow or Ban- uh, Banshee, Black uh, Canary, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, Harley Quinn. Alfred, uh, it's just fun. Um, so uh, I don't know. It, it hasn't g- just grabbed me yet all the way. Uh, certainly something different. Tom King's a great writer. It's well paced. It's a very technically uh, perfectly put together comic. Um, I am not the biggest fan of Yasmin Putri. Um, it's just the style doesn't do anything for me. Uh, but I, Again, I think it's a great job of, of choosing somebody who is illustrating this type of story in a, in a very pitch-perfect way. 
Uh, it's not super detailed. There's a, almost a little bit of watercolor feel to the colors uh, that we get from, uh, from Yasmin on, on the line work. So it, that sort of suits this sort of fanciful fantasy sort of setting that the story has. So I think that all works really, 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 really well. Uh, I can't, I can't, fart, I can't fault the storytelling at all either. Um, but based on the first issue, I'm just not really sure if it's my cup of tea. I'm leaning toward it feeling a little like I'm not going to enjoy it. Um, but I can't really put my finger on why, um, I guess, I don't know. I, I know a lot of people are going to love it and be blown away by it and just be, Oh my God, this is the best thing I've read. It's so awesome. And so cool. Cause it is a, a different idea and a different take on these very familiar characters. Um, but I don't know for me, it just, it wasn't terrible because again, I, I can recognize the skill with, with which it's, it's put together, but I don't know, I guess just the, this isn't something I really asked for or necessarily wanted, you know, like a mashup of King Arthur in the DC universe. So uh, I'll reserve judgment on this one for now, but um, I do think it's worth picking up and flipping through because I, I think based on just flipping through it, sort of the tone of the art again, because it, it suits the tone of the story so well, if you pick it up and flip through it, you're going to know right away if it's something that you want to check out or not. Uh, all right. We have another new series that's kicking off and this is the latest Tom King series. It's the human target issue. Number one, uh, written by Tom King. The art is by Greg Smallwood letters by Clayton Cowles. I thought this was fantastic. Um, and mostly because of the art that Greg Smallwood gives us. It, it's clearly recognizable as Greg Smallwood's art. And it just has this sense of, of sort of timelessness, this sense of kind of old fashioned art. It has everything to do with sort of the, the color. Um, like the, and if you've seen any of the images, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like it reminds me of, of pop art from the sixties, almost like these pastel chalk uh, sort of drawings um, where the, the colors aren't really vibrant. They're a little bit muted. Um, and it just has a charm to it that is so pitch perfect. Like if you were to do a, a Mad Men, uh, you know, the AMC show, if you were to do a comic like uh, and, and want to bring that tone of that show to a comic and do a sequential story, this is exactly the type of art you would bring. This is exactly who you would get to draw it. So it's, it's perfect in that way. Um, if I have anything negative to say about it, it said, I, you know, we know that Tom King likes to experiment with different ways of telling stories and, and uh, different storytelling uh, techniques and, and little tricks. And I don't want to say it gets old, but I think sometimes it's okay to just tell the story. Just start at point A, go to point B, to point C, to point D. Um, but it's almost like Tom can't, can't help himself. So we start off in this issue and we're there with the human target when he dies. Uh, and then we go backwards. We count down from day 12 to 11 to 10, all the way down to day one. And then the story sort of starts back up going forward um, with the human target. 
and uh, he, he's doing his, his job. He's doing his thing. You know, he's pretending to be somebody else so that he can flush out an assassin and that someone else turns out to be uh, Lex Luthor. And then we find out that he was poisoned. Dr. Midnight shows up. There's all these other hints of some other heroes who might be involved from the Justice League International, uh, which sort of makes it tie into the regular DC universe in a way. But um, again, I mean, this is a, this is a black label book. So uh, I know a lot of people didn't really care for what Tom King just did in his previous black label book to Adam strange. And people were freaking out. I'm like, it's a black label book. It's out of continuity. It doesn't matter. He can do whatever he wants to, to Adam strange. It doesn't affect the actual real Adam strange in well, real, right? None of these characters are real. They're all make believe, but it doesn't affect the, the Adam strange in the regular DC universe. And so the same thing here. So who knows? I mean, again, I, I think it's a good thing that a story like this is told in Black Label because it does give it weight. Even though Human Target isn't exactly the most well-known character, he did have his own TV show at one point on Fox, actually, with Mark Valley uh, played him, if you know that actor. He's blonde and you know chiseled jaw, good looks, all that sort of thing. And so he, he was a good choice for playing, uh, for playing uh, the Human Target not that I ever watched it, <laughs> actually. Uh, just one of those things. I never had time. Wasn't watching a lot of TV back then, much like much like now. Um, but anyway, uh, my, my point is that even though the human target isn't exactly the most well-known of DC characters, he's, he's known well enough. And it's not like... Um, it's like DC is going to truly kill off Christopher chance in the main DC universe and not have him come back. Uh, so again, with black label, he can't, there can really be stakes. He really could die just like Adam strange did in the, the pages of strange adventures. So again, off to a great start. The highlight of this first issue for me is, is the art. I could have absolutely hated this story and I still would pick this book up just based on the art. I mean, it, is phenomenal phenomenal art just the absolute perfect artist for the perfect project uh as far as the the mystery goes uh again i i sort of would have preferred if if we didn't have that opening sequence and then we're we're playing things in reverse um but i imagine tom will probably play around with the timeline okay maybe, maybe it's just that you know i've seen him do that before i mean he kind of did it in strange adventures we jumped around we had all kinds of flashbacks when Mr. Terrific was uh, running his investigation. And then with Rorschach, the same thing. It wasn't a linear story. So at some point, I, I mean, Tom wants to experiment and always tell stories in a different way. I can't actually remember the last time he just took a story and told it moving forward. So maybe that can be the new crazy different way for Tom to tell a story is just for him to sit us down and, and just tell us, you know, first event, second event, third event. But either way, I, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the human target, Christopher Chance. I think he's uh, an underrated character. And uh, I do like the voice, that sort of no-nonsense voice Tom King gives him here. And then I just can't say enough about the Greg Smallwood art. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, without a doubt, this is my book of the week. It's just gorgeous to look at. So 
Uh, all right, up next we have Icon and Rocket, season one, number four, Nuck If You Buck, written by Reginald Hudlin and Leon Chills. Pencils are by Doug Braithwaite. Inks by Andrew Curry. Colors by Brad Anderson. And letters by Anne World Design. Now, if it wouldn't have been for Human Target, this would have been my book of the week because this was action-packed and relevant and the best milestone book, as I say, every time I talk about it, every time one of these comes out, it just, it continues to impress me how how much action and pace Reginald Hundlin can bring while still making it feel like a superhero comic, still making it feel like it fits into the DC universe, even though this is the Dakota-verse, uh, but still have this undercurrent of kind of social problems you know he's making it socially relevant and now he's brought on leon chills to to help him uh, with the writing and i don't know exactly what their process is like or who's doing what but uh, it, they didn't miss a beat uh you know it starts off with this uh lord benedict who's the other alien who's on earth who's been searching for icon for a long time and, and is hundreds of years old just like icon did and or is and and lord benedict is attacking um rocket's mom and uh, Rocket and Icon show up there just in time to uh, to help save her. But the woman that was already there has sort of extricated uh, Rocket's mother. And Rocket's not inclined to necessarily trust her, even when the woman introduces herself as Zio Mara. Icon's like, I, I don't know what that means. Why should I trust you with my mama? So uh, Icon actually gets pretty beat down by by lord benedict and it's only through rocket's intervention that um that he's able to escape uh, some more permanent harm i guess you'd say but which leads uh rocket to sort of see at least his partially his uh, his true appearance and Ziomara leaves and obviously there's there's something there between her and icon because they can tell uh, they can communicate telepathically which leads to a, a fantastic scene as Icon takes both Rocket and Rocket's mother somewhere to keep them safe. They go, he goes to his base that's kind of hidden on the ocean floor. And with Rocket's mother being concerned about her daughter's well-being, she's asking questions all along. And Rocket's, uh, Rocket's kind of embarrassed about it. Like, Mama, how can you be asking him these questions? And Icon's like, no, it's, it's, it's actually good. And so we learn a lot. We learn a lot from the conversation between uh, Rocket's mother and Icon we learn about Icon's opinion of Rocket and, and how he believes that her sort of desire for justice and, and what Raquel has done in, in persuading uh, Augustus or Icon to get back in the game and get off the sidelines. Icon has been so impressed by that. He feels like Raquel could could be the one to unite the world. Uh, and, and Raquel's like, wait, president? And Icon's like, no, uh, she could be the one to end the tribalism is what he calls it, you know, different nations and, and nationalities and whatnot. So that's pretty impressive. I mean, obviously he has, a, you know, much different perspective, longer lived and what have you. Um, and then we see Ziomara and she shows up at this sort of secret mountain base hideout, I guess you'd say. And meets with what looks like a bunch of other superpowered beings, and some guy who appears to be leading them, uh, and they're who we don't know. 
because all Ziomara um, says, and it, it's clear that there, she's more interested in in Rocket actually than Icon, um, because Ziomara's reports like Rocket is green, but she has all the potential in the world. We should recruit her. And then they ask about Icon, and she's like, he's fine, I guess. You know, she seems a little unsure of herself. And then they they mention that the American assassin failed. Like, well, that figures our government hasn't uh, been able to get anything done in years. We'll, we'll do the job ourselves. So does that mean they're, they are going to go kill Icon? Not sure. Um, but still, good, good storytelling, good little hook to leave us with a little bit of a cliffhanger right at the end. Because, you know, we, we saw this woman, Zio Morrow. We thought she was some human um, police officer. She was uh, sort of had that identity and now come to find out she's obviously something much more than meets the eye uh, plenty of social relevance with that conversation between icon and raquel's mom or rocket's mom uh, and then this little hook at the end with these mysterious allies enemies who we don't know so uh i mean there this has been a, a fantastically paced series because hudlin has not missed a beat in giving us a background or the context that we've needed, but yet the entire time he's kept the story moving at such a fast pace and given us so much action. I've been extremely impressed with what Hudlin has done. Uh, and obviously with the help of Leon Chills in, in this one. And the other thing is that we're moving along so quickly here. We do tend, and I, I talked about this in the past as it pertains to this series, Doug Braithwaite's art is fantastic. He's such a great artist. I feel like not enough people talk about how wonderful he is in terms of his storytelling, in terms of his detail. His art is the type of art that deserves to have some larger panels so you can see the detail. But if there's any sort of drawback to this book, it's that Hudlin is moving at such a fast pace that there's not room to give larger panels. But Braithwaite's art doesn't suffer for for lack of, of space to breathe, it's still fantastic. It's still great storytelling. It's just, I got to zoom in with my digital <laughs> copy so that I can see, uh, see more. And I'm sure Reggie, uh, Reginald Hudlin would be the first one to say, oh man, yeah, if I could have more pages and let this art, uh, you know, be a little bigger, come across the page more, he would be all over that. Uh, but he's also such a great storyteller. He might say, oh, more pages, let me tell more story. But Either way, this is uh, a perfect creative team in terms of matching up the right artist on the right project, the right writers, and it, it's fantastic. If you're not reading any of the Milestone Return stuff and you're curious about just picking one up and getting the feel of the Milestone universe, this is the one I recommend you pick up. So, uh, all right, moving on. Next book I'm going to talk about is Mr. Miracle, The Source of Freedom, number six. This is from writer Brandon Easton. Vico Asio is the artist. Rico Renzi does colors. Rob Lee on letters. Um, this wraps up the story. And this is another one of those where I was like, man, I, we'll let Rocky talk about this because um, he could probably summarize it better than, than I, can, I, I can. But uh, unfortunately, he's not here. So I'll, I'll do the best I can. Basically, Shiloh Norman, we know, went to the future with the help of the Mother Box and Oberon and confronted Never Free. And we find out Never Free wants to, uh, she lost her parents, they've been erased from existence, 
She's trying to in turn er erase Shiloh Norman from existence because she's the only one that should have the legacy of Mr. Miracle. So while they're battling in the future, um, basically what happens is Shiloh sort of gives up. He sort of stops fighting and he appeals to kind of the better nature of uh, of never free. And so like, is this really the legacy? Like you say you're worthy of the legacy of the freeze of, of Mr. Miracle, um, but yet you're trying to destroy people. You're, you're imprisoning people, you're hurting people. And she actually listens. He actually is able to get through to her. Um, a lot of it to do with the fact that he's just suffered his own sort of crisis of identity with everything that he went through in the first couple of issues with his identity possibly being outed and um, and thinking about who he is himself. So it's almost like Never Free is, is drunk with power. And then when uh, there's a little bit of a, a lull in the battle, when Shiloh's parents actually show up, because again, we heard a couple of issues ago that they just got snatched out of time because of a mistake Thaddeus made, and he thought they had died, but when in fact they had been thrown into the time stream and, and showed up many, many years later. So that little lull in the battle is what actually allows uh, never to collect all the mother boxes and power herself up, but she starts to become overwhelmed by the power and Shiloh is able to sort of knock the mother boxes uh, away from her. And that's when he sort of appeals to her, her better nature. And uh, she's no longer powered up. She seems like she's no longer quite so drunk with power. Um, but before they can really decide what they're going to do with her, she gets snatched away by a boom tube. Um, and so at least it's a joyful reunion for Shiloh and his parents. And they start talking to Oberon, figuring out their, what their next step will be. And before they can even plan anything, Oberon and Shiloh are sucked into a boom tube. And Shiloh ends up back at Oberon's house in San Pedro, California. Oberon's not there. Shiloh's mother box says, yeah, Oberon went somewhere else. I can't track him. Doesn't know where his parents are. But throughout everything that's happened and the fact that everything pretty much worked out, Shiloh's got sort of a new perspective. He's like, I know I'll see my parents and my grandparents again. I know I'll eventually see Oberon again. I'm going to take the win. So now that he's back, he calls his agent and finds out he's been gone for three weeks, sets up a press conference, and then also calls uh, his the girl that he went on a date with in the second issue, I think, first issue, Denise. And sets up a date with her, and she's pretty happy uh, about that, and, and so is Shiloh. And then at the press conference very early the next morning, he reveals his identity to the world. Um, because with everything he's gone through, he's now more comfortable in his, in his skin. Um, and it, it kind of reflects back on what he was telling Never when she was sort of out of control when she was, she was drunk with power. Um, it's like you, you, if you just exist as that legacy character, you're never going to find out who you are, right? Because all Never's doing is just letting her hatred just take over. She's not thinking about who she is 
and and so in that way if she lets the hatred and the anger and everything take over she's not she's not only not worthy of the legacy she's physically or she's she's actually harming the legacy um you know she's she's tarnishing it in a way she's dishonoring it so you know he thinks about he thinks about that he thinks about you know the choices that that he made um and with everything he's learned about himself that Thaddeus is his grandfather and that his parents are still alive um that it's it's more important for him to be true to himself to sort of figure out who he is because even when he calls Denise to um he calls Denise to go on another date he apologizes for being a jerk um and he, he you know he tells her it's like I was so busy being Mr. Miracle that I forgot to kind of you know be myself basically so again it, it all played out sort of how you expected I mean the good guys win and um I don't know I, I enjoyed it you know I, I talked before about how I, I was unsure when the, I'm such a fan of Scott Free that I thought well when when the series got announced I'm like if I get a Mr. Miracle story I want it to be Scott Free not Shiloh Norman like who who really cares about Shiloh Norman right um but you know within the with within the first issue Brandon Easton really showed me that I cared about Shiloh Norman a lot more than I thought I did I mean it I don't know that Shiloh's ever had this much, you know, attention or, or this much uh, development to have him fleshed out as a character, but, but he's, he's fantastic, you know? Um, and again, it's, it's the idea of, of when he's talking to never, he's really talking to himself. I mean, what an incredible story in terms of evolution of a character, you know, when he's talking to, to never about legacy and talking about tainting legacy uh, he's really talking to himself, you know, like a, a legacy is worthless unless it, it adds to the generations of, of the past. He, he says the way he says it is uh, a legacy is worthless unless the new generation contributes to the tapestry of the past instead of just, you know, continuing to weave with brainless, predictable behavior. And that's sort of what he was doing, right? Like he was he wasn't Shiloh Norman, like the life he was living, he was only Mr. Miracle. And, and that played out in that first issue on that date with Denise, when all he could talk about was, you know, being in Hollywood and, and, you know, and Denise was like, you're just talking to me about Mr. Miracle. I want to know who you are. I want to know who Shiloh Norman is. And throughout this entire series, he couldn't help but discover who he was, you know, finding out he was related to Thaddeus, finding out what happened to his parents, you know, meeting Oberon, being confronted with this hate-filled antagonist who wanted to take his legacy from him because she felt that she was more deserving and him fighting back against that for, you know, a couple of reasons. It's his, it's his livelihood. It's the legacy he feels he deserves, but it was also his identity. You know, he only identified as Mr. America. It was his whole life being a celebrity, being a star, the adulation, um, you know, the, the, the monetary benefits and whatnot. Uh, and you sort of feel at the end of this issue that ha even had he lost the battle, 
and and have to give up being Mr. Miracle, that he still would have been okay, maybe for the first time ever, with just being Shiloh Norman. So again, fantastic series from Brandon Easton, wonderful character development for the Shiloh Norman uh, version of Mr. Miracle. Um, now, if it says Mr. Miracle, I, I don't I don't care. I don't even need to read. Is this a Scott Free story? Is it a, a Shiloh Norman story? Because I'm in. I'm in no matter what. Is it a Thaddeus Brown story? I'm in also because Shiloh will probably show up because that's, you know, the grandfather. So it's just great. Fico Asio's art, especially in the battle scenes in this one and the colors by Rico Renzi, like all of it works really, really well. This is a fantastic series. If you're not familiar at all with the, the Shiloh Norman uh, Mr. Miracle version. This is, the, this is his quintessential series. I mean, I know it's his only series now, but obviously he has shown up in previous stories here or there. Um, but this is his definitive run in my mind. So fantastic job by the entire creative team. Really, really good. Uh, okay. Up next, we have another of the milestone books. This is uh, static season one, number four, written by Vita Ayala. Layouts are by Chris Cross, finishes in color by Nicholas Draper Ivy, letters by Anne Roll Design. And we saw last issue that this secretive government organization is working with Francis, who's the was the high school bully who uh, who has the, the flame powers, who's fought with static before. And he's basically going in, going around and ratting out what other teenagers were at the rally that got their powers during the, the bang, you know, they're called bang babies. And so they show up at, uh, at Virgil Hawkins house and his parents are like, you're not taking our son. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. We're here to help. We just want to, you know, test them and it's all free. And well, and they're like, they're not buying it for a second, you know? Um, and, and rightly so, especially when it's a bunch of white, supposedly quote unquote agents, uh, and, you know, they're showing up on the, the porch of a black family. And I, I love the um, sort of the, the cat calls from the peanut gallery that Vita puts in here saying, these are professional clowns. Like, we ain't need you here. Yeah, she said, bye, leave. Burn so bad, smells like barbecue. So, yeah, it's it's good. And, and again, it plays into the idea that Vita has given us here where this is a family it's an African-American family, but she didn't, they didn't, sorry about that. Uh, but they didn't fall into the trope of saying it's a, it's a broken home or it's, you know, the father's in jail or the mother's a drug addict. This is a, you know, a well-adjusted middle American family. They just so happen to be African-American families at the root of who Virgil Hawkins is. And I, I saw them in some interviews. Um, you know, talking about that, how they wanted the, the the core family, the Hawkins family, to be you know very much a strong unit and uh, in influence on on Virgil Hawkins, and they've accomplished that very very well. Um, so now that Virgil knows that other Bang Babies are in trouble because of Francis and these other uh, people that are being recruited, he does a little, little bit of experimenting with some of the equipment that he took from Curtis Metcalf, otherwise known as Hardware, that he took from Curtis Metcalf. Metcalf's lab is able to create some armor. He's able to create the disc he flies on, has a little bit of a costume. And he goes to the steel factory on the outskirts of Dakota City because he, uh, he's got a friend who was, is able to track the, uh, the smartwatch 
that one of the other bang babies has uh, is, is wearing and it's been moved there. And so this is uh, somebody who already well, uh, that they know has powers. Daisy is her name. And they took her, they took her phone, but her watch is still on. She's able to track the, the watch. Darius is able to track the, the watch there. And so Virgil's going to do what he, what he needs to do. You know, he wants to keep his friends safe. So he goes there, try to break his friends out. He's, he's confronted by, by Francis hothead or whatever his name is. Uh, and it's a, uh, it's a pretty brutal battle, but it, it does seem like Francis, I don't know if it's because of his fear or, or his anger that kind of fuels his, his fire that he, or maybe it's just Virgil being overconfident, but he gets the upper hand on Virgil and uh, and burns him what looks like pretty badly, and it ends on that cliffhanger. So we'll have to see how that that goes next uh, next issue. So uh, again, I, I have no, absolutely zero complaints about what we're getting from from Static. I feel it's very much in line with uh, the first version of Static back in the '90s. Uh, it's relevant. Like I said, Vita doesn't fall into a lot of the kind of the obvious tropes. They're keeping it interesting. I like Virgil's voice. He's smart, but at the same time, he's a bit reckless. So it feels authentic when you're talking about a, a young black teenage boy. Uh, I love the, the strength of the family and how they get together. Uh, but yet they argue, uh, but they have each other's backs. So that feels very authentic. And uh, yeah, it's definitely, it, it definitely has enough in common with the, the you know, the first go round and static, obviously the, the most well-known of all the milestone properties. So this one's firing all, on all cylinders for me. And I, I think there's two issues. I think it's a six issue mini for all these first seasons. Um, but man, these, these milestone books are, are high quality. They, every one of them has impressed me with how good they are. And I should also say that we're, we're back to kind of the traditional work uh, for the art team here. I know uh, on some some previous issues we had, you know, Chris Cross doing full pages on his own and Nicholas Draper Ivy doing full pages, and it showed their different styles and it, it, it sort of worked for the story that the, the styles are pretty different, but the way Vita and and the rest of the creative team set it up was, you know, it was different. It wasn't flashbacks, but it was different settings um, in different parts of the story, and so it worked but uh, I didn't care for it as much as, as when they combine their talents. I, I like this much, much better. Uh, it's got a kind of a cinematic feel with static having electrical powers that all pops off the page. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a very dynamic style, much more so than when either of them goes off on their own to do their own pages. Uh, when you put them together, the artwork is definitely greater than the sum of the parts. So I hope they keep, keep doing this, uh, this version of the art. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Superman number 78, number three from writer Robert Venditti. Wilfredo Torres is the artist. Jordi Belair on colors. Dave Lamphere and a larger uh, world as letterer. Uh, last issue we saw Brainiac was threatening to destroy Metropolis unless Superman surrendered. So he does just that here. And the citizens of Metropolis try to talk him out of it, but he says, no, this is what I need to do uh, to keep you all safe. And Brainiac actually keeps his word. He takes Superman uh, away from Earth and leaves Metropolis for good. And when he gets him to his ship, he shows Superman all the other 
shrunken cities that he has there, including Kandor. And when Superman gets into Kandor, who does he find? Lo and behold, his parents. So they sort of explain how Brainiac saved them at the last moment from their uh, from their destruction, from Krypton being destroyed. And uh, Superman is in a way happy to see them, but in a way feels like he he failed. Um, and so Jor-El doesn't really, he, he feels like a failure as well. <laughs> they sort of have that in common because uh, Jor-El's like, yeah, I've, I've been here for, for years and years and years and I, I haven't been able to find a way out of here. Like science brought us here, only science will get us out. And despite using all my scientific ability uh, knowledge of dozens of worlds, I've been unable to solve the mystery. Um, and he almost seems like he's given up and he's talking about how he's, he's become weary um, and that the, the remaining Kryptonians need a, a new leader to guide them and, and says, you know, basically ask Kal-El, will, will you be the leader? Uh, will you accept Kandor as your home? And Clark's like, yes, I, I will. I mean, it's the only home I have left. Meanwhile, back on Earth at the Daily Planet, Lois receives a message saying, I know where Superman is, come alone. And when she travels there, she gets knocked out. And when she comes to, she's in this secret laboratory. And there's Lex Luthor uh, saying, Brainiac's about to learn that I'm the most devious criminal intelligence in the universe. Lex baby's going to bring Superman back. So how exactly? I mean, Lex was there at the moment that, um, that Brainiac took Superman. So did he plant some sort of tracking device on him? I think that's probably what went down. Uh, but why Lex would want, I mean, Lex has wanted Superman to leave forever. Maybe it all goes back to Lex's ego. Lex can't allow anybody else to defeat Superman. It's got to be him. Um, but what I loved about it most uh, about this issue, especially the little bit of dialogue we get from Lex at the end from Robert Venditti is, I can just hear Gene Hackman's voice in my head. I can just hear it. Uh, and I love that because it's, it's exactly the best Lex Luthor in my mind, best live action Lex Luthor. And I can hear, hear that voice in my head saying those lines. So that's fantastic. The other thing that's great was sort of the, I, I don't want, I don't want to say surprise. It wasn't like I was expecting Jorel and Laura to show up here. Um, but it's kind of funny that, they're in two books this this week they're in the dark knights uh, dark knights of steel as well as this um, but i i wasn't necessarily surprised when they showed up uh so i thought that was interesting and then immediately my mind went to well i think by the time superman 3 would have come out i think marlon brando was well, no he wasn't dead he was still around it it just made me think it would have been so interesting had richard donner gotten to finish superman 2 and then do this superman 3 with this brainiac story to have Marlon Brando, and I don't know the actress's name who played uh, played Laura, but it would have been so interesting to have them come back and do scenes in the Bottle City of Candor. I mean, who knows if we would have been able to because Marlon Brando had you know enough problems with Richard Donner as it was, he wouldn't even come back for the second film. But it just, again, it's I'm glad we have this because we're getting a Brainiac story set in that same Superman universe, the Christopher Reeve Superman universe, which is my live-action Superman and Rob, Robert Venditti's uh, live-action Superman, so that's fantastic. Um, 
it wouldn't have been this because we don't i mean we don't know what it would have been we only know very little we only know he was going to use brainiac we don't know what the actual story would have been but this feels like it fits in so seamlessly in that universe in that timeline in that world whatever you want to call it christopher reeve version of superman it's just this just feels right in tone much like the batman 89 feels right in tone so when you get a writer who can identify and and loves those stories and loves the passion uh of those stories uh, those movies this is what you end up with and the Rofredo Torres art, while it's it's not the most detailed art, I think it does a good job of capturing that same sort of time period and time frame and a little bit of sense of innocence uh, that that you get in those movies, so kind of pureness. So again, really great job from the entire creative team. Really curious to see how Superman's going to escape from Candor because it's you know technically has a red sun. Uh, you know, red solar energy as opposed to the yellow, but they don't have any powers there. So how Lex is going to help out. I mean, great. Maybe Lex did plan a tracker on Superman, but he's out in space. Brainiac flew off into space. How the heck are you going to get there? Because again, in the, the Christopher Reeve version uh, of Superman, we never saw any other superpowered beings. So we'll have to see how it all plays out. So we're halfway through uh, the Superman 78 series is six issues. This is issue three, so halfway through, we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, all right, up next, Swamp Thing number nine from writer Rom V. We have Mike Perkins on art, Mike Spicer on colors, and Aditya Bidikar on letters. This is the penultimate issue. There's only 10, uh, 10 issues, so we're on the next to last one. And we see the, the ne'er-do-wells at Prescott Industries have, have kidnapped Kamei's uh, girlfriend or friend or you know whoever this jennifer reese is to him she's been kidnapped they bring her in they they start explaining to her because she works for prescott you know she works at one of the local labs and they start explaining um she meets the um god what's the guy's name who's uh in charge here harper harper pilgrim is his name and he basically explains sort of the history of Swamp Thing and how there's been these different people that have been Swamp Thing over the years and, and how by them finding the remnants of one of these avatars, it has powered sort of every medical and technological innovation that, uh, that they've been able to, um, that they've been able to discover. And they want her help basically to, to help capture Levi. It's why they've been, it's why they've been trying to capture Levi because they're at a point where they don't know if, if Prescott Industries is going to be able to innovate anymore, come up with any new ideas without, you know, a new sort of massive dump of, of data um, with the, the dead specimen they found, the remnants of somebody who was a uh, avatar of the green you know, way back in the 1700s, they've sort of extracted and, and used everything they can. But with a live specimen, they expect to get a, a lot more data. So basically, they're, they've kidnapped Jennifer Reese and they're holding her hostage there in hopes to lure the Swamp Thing there. But instead of luring the Swamp Thing, they actually lure her, uh, lure Levi's brother. Uh, and obviously, he's much more malevolent and they're not necessarily ready for that as he starts to to pull the whole place apart and so pilgrim and reese 
try to make their escape, uh, but they're ambushed by Levi's brother. I'm sorry, I don't remember what his name is. Uh, when Levi shows up there, or Jacob, that's his name. Uh, when Levi shows up there and says, Jacob, this is not the way, we, we have to stop them. And Jacob's like, what, what are you doing? Why would you not stop me from destroying them when they are the ones who are hurting the green and, you know, they're trying to kill you. But, you know, Levi obviously has feelings for Jennifer, but he, he says it's not the way. Yes, we should protect them, but, you know, this is not the way. Um, and, and what I'm actually doing by stopping you from murdering, murdering them and murdering all these people that work at, um, at Prescott is that I'm actually protecting you, you know, because he doesn't want his brother to be a murderer, basically. And so they leave, they're able to, to reach a helicopter and fly away as uh, Levi and Jacob are, are fighting inside the, the sub-basement of the, the laboratory. And we see that uh, Pilgrim activates this deep freeze protocol. Uh, it says time to cryo-release three minutes, 29 seconds. And it's basically going to freeze them. And then they'll be able to go down there and conduct their research. So like I said, only one issue left. So we'll obviously expect it all to wrap up next issue. What'll be interesting is, is will it all wrap up in such a way that we know Levi is not going to continue as Swamp Thing? Or are we going to get Alec Holland back? Is it going to stay Levi? Are we going to get both? Are we going to get some kind of up in the air, unclear sort of ending? Is Jacob going to survive? So I don't know. It, it sort of feels like I mean, at the beginning, I don't know that this was a 10-issue series. I didn't necessarily say it was. I don't remember hearing that when it was announced, and I thought it was a, an ongoing. And then eventually we heard 10 issues. And it's been interesting because it, it certainly doesn't feel like one whole story. We've had a couple different arcs, and while they certainly feel connected, Ramvi's done an incredible job, um, it feels like this is set up as an ongoing so it's kind of interesting that we're only getting 10 issues. I feel like we should. I feel like Ram V has a lot more to say with these characters. And I'm not even that big of a fan of Swamp Thing, as you guys know. So, uh, but the art by Mike, Mike Perkins is just as detailed and gorgeous as always. Mike Spicer does an incredible job with the letters. This was an action packed, fast paced, breakneck issue. Ends on that cliffhanger, like I said, with the cryo, whatever, about to be released to freeze them crypto release of the deep freeze uh so really curious how this is all gonna help how, how it's all gonna wrap up how i mean is levi gonna defeat jacob he's gotta defeat him but yet save him and keep him from being frozen but he's also has to defeat pilgrim and make sure prescott pays for what they've done um hopefully try to preserve and lay to rest the remnants of the other avatars of the green that prescott has exploited over the years so there's a lot of cleanup to do here for for levi um but it, it does seem like he's definitely accepted who he is as swamp thing this is the first issue where it really feels like not only is he accepting but he's he's active in making himself become swamp thing in this issue he doesn't just let it happen to him he's taken agency he's he's taking control of of who he is as swamp thing so i definitely enjoyed that aspect of it all right, on to the last book I'm going to talk about uh, in detail. Uh, it's Teen Titans Academy number seven. This was written by Tim Sheridan. Rafa Sandoval handles the pencils. Jordi Tarragona on inks. Alex Sinclair on colors. And Rob Lee on letters. 
Uh, and we know that the Teen Titans were off camping and they basically ran into, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, Gorilla Grodd. And one of the members of Teen Titans Academy is uh, the same same species as gorilla grod you know he's one of the super intelligent uh gorillas and he he's recruited by his uncle um and then we find out in the course of this issue that he's he's not actually actively working with his uncle but he's he's going along and pretending to be working with him to try to find a way to save his friends um so when they get to manhattan and everybody's sort of been mind controlled we see Greg finally turn against his uncle. And then when the other teen time members of the teen Titans Academy ask him, well, what took you so long? And we kind of learned about the, the fear that he had and the self-doubt, which again, it's, it's pretty accurate. And you're talking about somebody who's the equivalent of a teenager, you know? Yeah. He might be a super intelligent eight, but he is still just a kid, high school kid. And, you know, you tend to trust authority, especially when it's a family member. And he's like, yeah, I know my uncle's a super villain, but, and I, but I just kept waiting for my opening. And I, I never, you know, felt like I found it and I was scared and worried. And so I thought it was a good job by Tim Sheridan of making that feel authentic, feeling like what a, a real teenager would feel in that uh, situation. Um, and the art by Rafa Sandoval is, is up to his usual standards. He needs to draw every issue of this series. I don't want any fill-in artists like we've had uh, because he does a fantastic job. The colors are great. So this has a great Teen Titans Academy feel to it. Uh, it definitely doesn't feel like a Teen Titans book or a Titans book. This is definitely Teen Titans Academy, the, the Sheridan verse in terms of the, the feel, the, the way they're paced, the scripting, the colors, everything about it feels like a unique take on, on Titans and a fresh take with these new characters that we're, we're learning about. And I, I hope we get more of this. This was definitely the story ended up being a spotlight on Greg. And I feel like I have a much better handle on, on who he is. Um, and so I, I need that to continue. We need some of the other characters to, to have a chance uh, as well, like, you know, Stitch and Chupacabra and, and, you know, these other characters, they all need a chance to, to shine as well. So we can get an idea of, of who they are. So pretty solid, you know, it part of the shared inverse, but it, it definitely feels much different in tone than uh, that recent Shazam series did, uh, which I find to be interesting, which is maybe why that Shazam series did need to be its own, its own thing. So all in all, I thought it was fantastic. Like I said, great art by uh, Rafa Sandoval, beautiful colors by Alex Sinclair, which, you know, you come to expect from Alex Sinclair, really bold, vibrant colors, maybe a little on the primary side, which is great because it gives it that classic, superhero feel like i talk about all the time so uh yeah it's pretty pretty solid i'm pretty happy with teen titans academy it's a it's a series it's been just a little bit inconsistent for me but i feel like there's been way more good issues than bad like if i had to if i had to say there's probably been like two issues maybe one issue that i didn't enjoy so i've enjoyed you know five to six of the seven so uh it's it's definitely a series I've, i'm coming to recommend so, uh, so that does it for the books I'm going to talk about in detail. There are a few other titles dropping. Uh, the Joker Presents a Puzzle Box, number four, is out. Batman The Adventures Continue, season two, number six. 
Justice League Infinity number five, which is a continuation of the, the Justice League Unlimited cartoon. Uh, Soul Plumber number two, which is in DC's horror line, is out. The Man Bat trade paperback is also out. We have a Daphne Byrne trade paperback, uh, which is uh, also another one of DC's uh, horror titles. And as far as hardbacks go, there's uh, an American Vampire 1976 hardcover and a, uh, a volume one of the Joker, the James Tynan Joker series is getting uh, a hardcover for the first volume. And then the last hardcover, just in time for, for Christmas, uh, Batman Noel hardcover, which is uh, one of the best Batman stories ever written and illustrated by Lee Bermejo. It's one of my favorite Batman stories ever. It is some of the best Batman art you will ever, ever see. I covered it last year for Christmas. I read it every Christmas. It's a, it's a Batman story, uh, and it is a Christmas story. Um, so if you're curious about my thoughts, go look for last year's, uh, one of the 12 Days of Christmas episodes I did, or 12 Days of the Comic Source episodes I did for Batman Noel. It's absolutely fantastic. It's my highest possible recommendation, and it's a beautiful hard hardcover, fit right on your shelf really get to show it off. Um, in fact, I think mine, yeah, I have mine. Mine's not actually in my bookshelf. I have it on a, a shelf on a book stand. So it, I can see that fantastic cover uh, and have it displayed. So anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Hopefully, hopefully it wasn't too long. Again, apologies, Rocky couldn't be here and best to his family while they're dealing with some stuff. Um, so hope you guys all enjoyed it. Hope I didn't ramble too much. Hope you didn't miss Rocky too much, but we appreciate the support as always. Uh, Rocky is still going to put this out on his channel for the video. Uh, I'll just remind everybody, if you are joining us on YouTube uh, and you want to hear more from uh, the comic source, maybe some of the other audio episodes we do, just go to whatever podcast app you use or podcast uh, provider, whether it be Google, Stitcher, uh, Apple, uh, Spotify, we're on all of them. So just do a search for the comic source there and you'll find us and you can subscribe or just go to your favorite podcasting app on your smart device, do a search for the comic source that way and you can find us and uh, be sure you never miss an episode. Conversely, if you only have been listening to the uh, audio versions and you're curious about what other content Rocky puts out on his Comic Boom channel, just go to YouTube, do a search for comic space boom exclamation point, give his channel a subscription Ring that notification bell so you know whenever he has new content drop. Uh, and be sure you give this episode a, uh, a thumbs up because that helps spread the word so everybody who wants to hear about this week's DC Comics can find us real easily. So uh, again, we appreciate the support and you guys checking us out as always. And we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.